0: Hello, and welcome to Carmel Presbyterian Church's podcast channel. Open up a Bible or just listen in. We hope this week's message is a blessing to you. Join me in prayer. Holy Spirit, we, we ask you to come and work powerfully now. That you would speak to our hearts, that... You would meet each of us at our point of need and that we would know when we leave here that we met with you. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Last week we ended with this passage that I'm going to read to you now except we didn't include the last verse. I'll tell you why. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice Whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. That last line, uh, most of us pastors shudder because we can't possibly tell you to be like us. Um, I wish... I could say what Paul said, and say, oh yeah, just in this particular area, do like me, but it's really an area where I'm, I, I just feel I should be a lot farther along um, than I am right now, especially when it comes to the three things in that passage of focusing on the good things, just putting everything in God's hands, all your concerns, praying and turning them over to Him, and then experiencing supernatural peace, a peace that uh, surpasses all understanding. So I feel like I'm learning and growing, but um, I hope you'll find that today's concepts and applications are helpful to you. They're they're being helpful to me personally. I'm working each day several times a day, kind of trying to think about them, put them into practice. So we're nearing the end of this series. Next week will be the last one um, on doing well in adversity or handling adversity well. And today we're going to look at some things in the book of Daniel. We've been looking at different Old Testament um, heroes. And we're also going to look at how worry when you're not in the middle of adversity impacts how you handle adversity when it comes. I hope that'll be helpful. I'm finding it personally very, very helpful. So... When the Israelites were about to enter the promised land, you may remember from about three weeks ago that Moses gave them this really stern warning because he wasn't going to get to go with them. And he said, look, when you get in there and you've got these great houses and everything's going really well, be careful. Don't ever think that you, by your might, got this stuff. And don't forget God and start chasing after other gods. Well, sure enough, First of all, this map shows on um, the top part the pinkish part is after Solomon, they break into two nations, Israel to the to the north and Judah to the south. the ten tribes of Israel, the two of Judah, more or less, and um, they war sometimes and sometimes they get along. but just like Moses warned them not to do, that most of the kings are awful, the people are often getting involved in idol worship. And it just goes on and on for a long time like this. And Moses had said, if you do that, just like God destroyed the nations that are currently in the promised land so that you could go in, God will destroy you. And that's what happened, uh, happens. The, uh, we'll show the next slide. The uh, Assyrians were probably the worst of the empires in the ancient world. They're up here, right there, it says Assyria, and a little down from there, Nineveh. And the Assyrians came, and they just wiped out the northern Tribes, the Israel, and um, they carried many of them off into exile. The Assyrians, they just ruled by terror. They would uh, just do atrocities with entire cities. And basically, we call those the lost 10 tribes because they never, at least not as a group, came back and resettled back into Israel. So um, about 100 years later, Finally Judah is being so bad, the southern portion, that the Babylonians come and they start, they conquer them and they start taking them off into exile in stages and Daniel, who the book of Daniel is about, Uh, He probably goes as a young boy about 604 BC and probably what what the Babylonians did, they took all the important people and the leader types and successful ones and they took them all off to Babylon thinking that would minimize the likelihood that the Jewish people would rebel. But less than 20 years later, they do rebel and the Babylonians say, well, that's it. And they just come and obliterate uh, the whole area of Judah. They completely destroy Jerusalem. And um, they carry many more people off into exile to Babylon. You can see Babylon way over there, um, down low on the right. And uh, the people are there for many years. A remnant does return, but it's during that time in exile in Babylon that Daniel and the book of Daniel takes place. And so what the Babylonians did is they would take some of the young men, probably they were of noble extraction, and they brought them in from the different peoples they had subjugated and they took a sampling of them and they trained them to be civil servants. And so Daniel and three of his friends, Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego, they are brought into this and they immediately have a conflict because the Mosaic law won't let them eat the same things, probably you know pork or maybe some shellfish that they're not supposed to eat. And so they propose that can they just eat the way they're supposed to? And um, the eunuch in charge gives them a 10-day shot, and they come out healthier than everybody. So from then on, they are allowed to keep their dietary laws. But they were determined to obey God. They finish a three-year master's program on running the empire. The Babylonian Empire, biggest thing yet. And when they have their final exam at the end of three years, Daniel, Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego, they're better than everybody else. And they're sent off to probably some province to help administrate and learn. and um, But remember, they, they'd gone through tremendous adversity. They'd been ripped out of their homeland. Uh, it may be that by now Jerusalem has been destroyed. We're not exactly sure what age they are when that happens. Maybe it's a little bit later. But can you imagine a foreign nation comes in and conquers us, destroys lots of buildings, kills lots of people, you know, and then carries off a lot of people and eventually just leaves the whole land desolate and without, and even puts in people from other places to keep it from being okay. That was tremendous adversity. And Daniel, Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego, they don't really have any choice. They have been now summoned and will serve the king and they'd better do a good job. Um, I'll tell you why. One day, King Nebuchadnezzar, the, the Babylonian king, he has a troubling dream. And so he tells his wizards and sorcerers and magicians, I want you to interpret this dream, but you've got to tell me what the dream is too. And they're going, nobody can do that. We don't know what the dream You've got to tell us the dream first. And the king, I mean, in, in defense of the king, and he, sa- and he says that he's going to rip them, he's going to have them torn limb from limb if they can't do it. And uh, all of them. And he's kind of figured out that they've been working him. They've been kind of getting together and deciding, we're going to tell the king this so that we can kind of mold. You know, you know, the tea leaves say this, or the bones say that, or whatever it might be that they're, they're um, claiming to have supernatural knowledge. And so he says, okay, you got supernatural knowledge, you tell me what the dream is too. And so there he gathers all the wise men, all the people like Daniel that have been trained, and he's going to kill them all. And Daniel finds out what's going on when he arrives in town, and he says, well, can I have an appointment with the king? I'll tell him his dream and the interpretation. But he doesn't know it yet. And he goes home, and he, he, goes, he goes to where he and Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego are staying, and he says, guys, you've got to pray. And that night, God gives him a vision, the dream and the interpretation. He goes into his appointment, and he says, well, you saw a, a, a statue with a golden head and then arms and chest of silver and then bronze from down to here and then iron legs and then feet of iron and clay mixed together. And what it means is the following, you, O mighty King Nebuchadnezzar, you are the head of gold and after you will come an inferior empire of silver and after them an inferior one of bronze and after them a very strong one like iron but inferior and divided eventually with the feet mixed with clay and iron. And Nebuchadnezzar says, That's exactly what I dreamed. This is only someone with supernatural connections could know this. And he puts Daniel in charge of the most important region in Babylon, which is around Babylon, the most important province. Daniel works it so that Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego can join him. And one of the, one, just one thing that's encouraging when you're in the midst of adversity remember, they have been just clobbered. Huge adversity. And the mightiest king in the world, all of his wise men can't do anything, is about to kill them, including Daniel and his friends. And God intervenes. And God gives Daniel the information that he needs in a vision. And the information is what's going to happen over several centuries as different empires come and go. And most scholars would say the the, the Babylonian one is the gold, the Persian one is the silver and after that comes the Greek, and after that the Roman. And one other thing in the dream is that there's this stone carved not by human hands that smashes the statue and then becomes a mountain that fills the earth, and Daniel says that's God establishing his eternal kingdom. And That's exactly what happens during the Roman Empire. Jesus comes and establishes his kingdom. And the, the thing about this is an oppressed people About to get be ripped limb from limb, and God comes through and intervenes and not only intervenes but puts Daniel now basically in charge, sort of like Joseph was, not quite as much, but similar. That should encourage us when we're in the middle of adversity. Now he's put in charge. Keeps Shad- Meshach, Shadrach, and go with him. This is, a, this is a good time. They probably live in nice places. They have good food that's kosher. They're able to have servants. They, um, people treat them well because they're in charge. But they're subject to the whims of a tyrant who says people get torn limb from limb. And you may be in a good time right now. But you live in a fallen world where there's cancer and floods and earthquakes and whether you realize it or not there are powerful evil forces that are out to do you in and there are even some people who are evil who may be out to get you at times. So adversity, which is often unexpected, will eventually find us. And sure enough, the good times end for Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and King Nebuchadnezzar decides to make a 90 foot tall statue, golden statue and he gets all the important people and says okay, when the music starts, everybody bows down and worships the statue. And so the music starts and Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego won't do it. Now Daniel's for some reason not there and uh, somebody tatt- some of the people that are jealous of them tattle on them. And so the king's furious, and he says, hey, we'll play the music again, you bow down. And they say, look, we can't do that. We can't worship other gods. And, if you, and he says what, what he's told everybody is if you don't worship the statue, you're going to be burned alive in a furnace, a great big metal furnace. And they say, you know, our God can rescue us even from your metal furnace, but we're not going to bow down and worship. And now the king is just incredibly angry because he's feeling insulted both himself and his God. And he has them bound and heats the furnace up really hot and has them thrown in the furnace. It's so hot that the guys throwing them in die. And then King Nebuchadnezzar is just stunned because as he looks into the mouth of the furnace, it's huge. He sees the three of them walking around inside, untouched by the fire, along with a fourth person who he says looks like a son of the gods. He calls them out. They come out, they don't, have, they don't even smell like smoke. And at this point, he praises them for being faithful to their God. A minute ago, he's killing them for being faithful to their God. Now he's praising them for being faithful to God. And he immediately makes a law that anybody who badmouths their God is gonna get torn limb from limb. <laughs> it's kind of his go-to punishment. Now, before we come back to Daniel and see a little bit of something near the closer to the end of his life, um, what's the purpose of all these narratives in the Old Testament? Why do we see God intervening for, uh, we saw for Joseph or for Moses or for David or for Elijah? What's the purpose? In his book, The Bible Jesus Read, Philip Yancey makes a great point that you could make the argument and there's a lot to this, that all of this is meant to build our faith. To help us to be convinced that God can be trusted in every situation. That he's got it. That he can intervene. Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego, what they say to the king is they say, our God can save us. And they seem to think that he will save them, but they also put in a caveat. They put in a disclaimer. They say, but if God doesn't... Choose to save us, we're still not going to worship your golden idol. I mean, think for a minute. If if this huge furnace that's going to burn you alive is there, and they say, you either bow down to this golden idol or you go in and get burned alive, what would you do? How do you think Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego developed so much confidence in God? What was going on for those good years when Daniel was in charge of that province and he would brought them in to help, when things were basically going well? And what do you do during the good years when you're not experiencing a lot of adversity? Now, later on in the book of Daniel, we're told that every day, no matter what, he would get down on his knees and he would pray three times each day. We also saw earlier that he and his friends, they obeyed the Mosaic law, at least the dietary part, which probably means they obeyed the rest also. So they clearly knew about that, which means they probably also knew about things like God intervening to help Joseph or Moses or David or Elijah or, or many others, heroes of the faith. So they had knowledge that God intervenes supernaturally. They were convinced that God can be trusted in every situation. Are you? Are you convinced that you can trust God in every situation? Or do you worry? What do you worry about? I have five children and five grandchildren. Easy to worry. What do you worry about? I've, I worry, and that's, I, I've just been recognizing that I really need to work on that, and so I am. Um, I worry more than I should. I've been talking with the Lord about it. Uh, I'd like to stop worrying. Jesus would like for me to stop worrying. Uh, would you like to worry less? Aren't we, aren't we hilarious? Preachers, we, we seem to think there's some kind of advantage in worrying. That's not what Jesus says at all. I hope today will help. What do we need to go through adversity well? We need faith or confidence or trust that God can be trusted in every, certainty that God can be trusted in every situation. How did Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego and Daniel develop this, this strong faith, this confidence? this trust. I think it's reasonable to assume that in spite of their busy lives administrating the most important province of the most important empire on the planet at that point, that they probably all stopped three times a day to talk to God and pray. They would trained their hearts to obey no matter what early on with the dietary laws thing and other things. And they were remembering the supernatural ways that god had already saved many people in the bible but also how he saved them like when daniel had the vision they were all going to die and daniel had the vision of the dream of nebuchadnezzar and the meaning so even though they're subject to a tyrant they're very certain that they can trust god How does that play into us today? You know, the Bible says that if you've given your life to Jesus, no one can snatch you out of the Father's hands. That's what Jesus says in in John 10. It's absolutely true. Jesus holds on to, the Father holds on to everyone who's put their faith in him. It is also true that although he holds on to all of his sheep, some sheep go through adversity worse than others. Would you open a Bible to 1 Corinthians chapter 3? It's on page 953, or you can use an app. Instead of sheep, in this passage, instead of the sheep metaphor, the Apostle Paul is using the metaphor of a temple because God resides in us. We are his temple. And you'll and we're gonna, it's going to take us a while to get through there, so I encourage you to just kind of leave it open and keep referring back to it. Starting at verse 10 of 1 Corinthians 3. Watch what Paul says. According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation, and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. So there's only one foundation Jesus. He's the only one that gives us his righteousness, that died for our sins. He's the only foundation. But notice in verse ten that Paul says we should take care how we build on the foundation. Why? If you're if you've been rescued by Jesus and you're set, and you're, you know you know you're forgiven, and nobody can snatch you out of the Father's why would it, Father's hand? Why would it matter that you take care how you build on the foundation? Look at verse twelve. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, so within Paul's metaphor of you being the temple of God. You can choose to add onto the foundation gold or silver or precious metals or wood, hay, straw. Verse 13, each one's work will become manifest for the day will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, He will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. Now, when it talks about the fire of the day, the day refers to the day of judgment in the New Testament, but there's also smaller fires than the day of judgment. Peter says, beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. And that's adversity. There's the fires of adversity and they they generally tend to show us what we've been building on top of the foundation look again at verses 13 and 15 or through 15 just kind of read them to yourselves as i'm talking to you the point being that adversity's fires will burn up the wood hay and straw as will the day of judgment but not the gold not the silver not the precious stones they just get purified so if you build well on the foundation what you and what you build survives adversity you receive a reward if you build poorly, you're still saved. But what you built is burned up. Now, this is, this is a passage that people don't like sometimes because it means that uh, once the Holy Spirit is inside of us, he wants us to be obedient. He wants us to co-labor with him as we're transformed, as we build gold and silver and precious stones on the foundation of Jesus Christ and not wood, hay, and straw. There are many passages by various authors in the New Testament that say we need to obey, we need to be transformed, uh, we need to be holy. James says, be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. Peter, be holy in all your conduct. John, no one born of God makes a practice of sinning. And then we'll put it on screen, Paul, because I, I, this one kind of captures what the New Testament expects of us. Train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, Godliness is a value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. How do you get ready for adversity? You grow your faith. You build gold and silver and precious stones on the foundation. You train yourself in godliness co-laboring with the Holy Spirit adversity is always painful it's usually a lot harder than we expect and it can involve someone betraying you that you trusted it can involve someone you love dying or you yourself getting cancer or someone you love or long-term physical pain mental deterioration estrangement from people you love loss of all your life savings there are some adversities out there that can be really really tough Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego literally faced a fiery trial. Peter is saying that you will face a fiery trial, but he means it metaphorically. You probably won't be thrown into an oven. The best way to make it through the fire with all of its pain is to make sure that you are building the right stuff on the foundation, stuff that can't burn up. What what burns up? If you build it on your life, you build your life on certain things, what things can burn up? your health, your car, your house, or your vacations, your career, your status. You can even lose friends and family. What cannot burn up? Your relationship with God. As you've trained in godliness and developed Christ-like character, that doesn't burn up. Even when you do something that's just temporarily good for somebody in need, that doesn't burn up. And and if you do something that's of eternal good for somebody's spiritual need, that doesn't burn up. There's probably many more things we could put on both lists. It's just a start. But when it comes to something that will help you through adversity, of all the characteristics that you could be really co-laboring with the Holy Spirit to develop, perhaps one of the most powerful ones is plain and simply faith confidence in God trusting God in every situation. So how can you develop that? Well, the same way Daniel, Meshach, Shadrach and Abednego did. They constantly you you constantly remind yourself of the many times God intervenes in the Bible, but also you should have a list of times that God has intervened in your own life where you know that he intervened. So that you know that he can intervene just as Meshach, Shadrach and Abednego said. Also You notice they were obedient. Even when everybody else was doing something different, they were obedient. And part of the way that God trains us to trust Him and have faith is when we obey, it molds our heart. They prayed three times a day a close relationship with God, talking with Him throughout your day. And what I would recommend is when you're not in the middle of huge adversity. Work with the Holy Spirit to train your heart to handle the little adversities, whether it's somebody cutting you off on the freeway or irritating you in some way, and begin to have little conversations with God about how He can bring good out of even that ridiculously small thing. Change the way you think about your irritations. Change the way you, your perspective on the things that disappoint you, and start working with God to build a heart that trusts Him in every situation then you'll have less trouble, It'll be, you'll be more strengthened, you'll be readier, more ready when bigger adversities come. When Daniel gets older, sure enough, the Persians conquered the Babylonians and he's serving the Persian king and people are jealous of him and so they, they've set a trap for him, they get the king to do this ridiculous law where, and, and he can't change the law once he makes it, it's what, why we, where we get the phrase, the law of the Medes and the Persians, can't, it's in concrete once you make it. And um, he makes a law that people can only pray to the king. The king makes a law that people can only pray to the king for the next 30 days. And this is the, Daniel's enemy's opportunity. They know he's going to go pray. He, sure enough, he goes home and keeps praying three times a day. They catch him praying. That's why he's in trouble. He gets caught praying. And the king has said, anybody who does that will be thrown in the lion's den. And that's what they now have to do with Daniel. So they throw him in the lion's den. king doesn't want to. And... Daniel doesn't seem really all that impacted by the adversity. He, he, God shuts the mouth of a lion. Next morning, he's fine. Um, he's used to God intervening. He's full of faith by this point in his life. Now, Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego said that God might not rescue them. What do you do when you're in a lot of pain and God doesn't give you what you ask for? How do you, how do you look at that? If God does not answer your prayers and intervene, you know he's able to. It's because he has a better plan. I love the way Tim Keller says it. We'll put it on screen. God will only give you what you would have asked for if you knew everything he knows. Because you can trust him probably the greatest example of this is Jesus. In the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus is just struggling. He's saying, please, Father, let's do this some other way But there's no other way. And Jesus goes on to experience more pain than anyone ever has or ever will. And now it's his greatest glory. When we pray and God does not give us the relief we ask for, usually in the middle of the pain, we can't perceive how in the world it could work out for good. But probably you've had a time when you were struggling and you, at that time you didn't see how it could work out for good and then years later looking back you see how God brought good out of it. Sometimes we just have to trust that we won't know in this life. We won't know till heaven. Sometimes we will. And just realize that even though we don't perceive yet how good is going to come out of it, God is that powerful. If he could do it for Jesus on the cross, he can do it for you. Jesus praised people for their faith. He was actually upset when people doubted the goodness and the trustworthiness of God. So he urged people not to worry. He said, it's just obvious, just look around you. His faith, his trust in the Father got him through the worst adversity that anyone has ever experienced. I want to read to you now what Jesus said, some of the most beautiful words ever put together. In the Sermon on the Mount, to encourage us just to look around us and not to worry, not to be anxious, to realize that God has got you and he's a good, good God. So I'd encourage you to just kind of close your eyes and these are, this is part of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus' statements about not worrying. Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns. which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O men of little faith? Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things shall be yours as well. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Let the day's own trouble be sufficient for the day. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would train our hearts to trust you. Help us, especially in the small things, to learn how to look to you for whatever good you're doing and to trust you especially when we we don't see it yet. Pray that you would build our faith so that when adversity comes, we are better prepared and we can praise you in the middle of it even if we don't understand what's going on. Fill us with your spirit. May we see the change in our lives. May we go from complaining and worry to trust and joy and peace. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. And now, some parting words from Pastor Rick. And now be filled with the Holy Spirit that you might have all the power you need, whether you're in a time of adversity or a time that's relatively calm. May you talk to God several times every day. May you express your trust and faith in him as you remember all the ways he has intervened. Go in the power of the Holy Spirit. Go in peace, amen. Thank you for listening. For more information about Carmel Presbyterian Church, visit our website at www.carmelpres.org or any of our social media pages, Have a blessed rest of your week.